Welcome back to another episode of the Meet Kevin Report. Oh boy, oh boy, we've got a lot to pay attention to today. Specifically, what is going to happen with the banks? That's going to be the biggest thing we're paying attention to today. Of course, here in pre-market, you've got First Republic Bank. Despite the Federal Reserve's bailout sitting at negative 62%, Charles Schwab sitting at negative 9.4% in pre-market. You've got JP Morgan down about half of a percent in pre-market. Bank of America down about 3.47. Citi Group down about 1.43. So banks not having the bailout in the best potential way. You got the S&P 500 looking at about 0.46 to the upside. Short of that rally that we had after the Federal Reserve's bailout, you've seen some softness there that we've been trying to come back over the last hour here. Uh, and we expect the same will end up being true of the NASDAQ, except the NASDAQ potentially is slightly more insulated, sitting at 1%, though a far cry from about that 1.8% we saw earlier. So what's going on? Well, it seems like a lot of fears are extending that maybe, just maybe, the bank run won't actually be over. And so we'll be talking about that. We'll also provide some updates on what's going on with uh, China, Zelensky, and Russia. Although most of today's attention, I expect, in the financial media will be focused on what's happening with bank runs. Are people still going to banks to close out their community accounts? Because as we say, once bitten, twice shy. It makes a lot of sense. In fact, it makes so much sense that apparently there are now some folks in Congress potentially trying to get people censored on social media who are suggesting that you should leave smaller banks. Because golly, why would you want to have prudent advice actually shared? But anyway, let's take a brief listen here to what Bloomberg's opening up with and let's see what they got to say. Here we go spoke about every two weeks. It was less than that, but that's the way it was in the crisis. This is someone, an academic out of UMass Amherst. She was a Bob Dole acolyte out of Kansas, and she foundationally understands small banking in America. She lived with Bob Dole the early part of the SNL crisis. Should we get to the deposit insurance, Tom? Is <clears> 250 <throat> a limit anymore? Is that done? No, is that over with? Well, it just feels like that was my amateur take is it's done and it should have been higher uh, to begin with. I thought it was artificial. I mean, just, just depends what the price is going to be for that insurance, right? How do you determine that? If it's not 250, is it free insurance as and, much as you want in terms of whatever do you have in terms of your uh, deposit account? And the arch issue here to get to our next guest is that, have we done the data check, John? You think we're okay here? Briefly, the yeah. I mean, there's tons to talk about. I could come back to it yeah, later. We'll come back to it later. And, and what is so important here is what was so different in the time of Bob Dole money market funds. Gerard Cassidy joins us now, as he did on Friday, I believe it was. He is with RBC Capital Markets and absolutely definitive on the fabric of American banking. Is that all this is about, Gerard? The Reserve Bank, you and I one day were sitting over a cup of coffee at that little coffee shop by Government Center in Boston, and we said, what the hell is a money market fund? Now we know. Is that all this is about, is the fear of bank deposits moving to money market funds? Tom, thank you for having me on the program again. And I think that's definitely part of it. And you have a very good memory because when the reserve, reserve Fund broke the buck, the Fed immediately came out and guaranteed all of the money market mutual funds to instill confidence in the money market mutual fund industry back then. Today, of course, because of what's happened with Silicon Valley Bank and then yesterday, of course, Signature Bank, there's not a lot of confidence by 
uh, depositors to keep the large depositors over the deposit limit to keep their deposits in the bank. However, the action that was announced yesterday by the Fed, the U.S. Treasury, and the FDIC should give all depositors confidence that their deposits are insured well above the $250,000 limit that you guys addressed. So I think it's going to take some time to to cool down, there's certainly a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear is showing up in the bank stocks at the opening. So it will be a really uh, bumpy, rough day today for bank equities. It's not helping the bank stocks to the pre-market. And I think that's what stands out for a lot of people, Gerard. Do you think what they've done overnight, yesterday evening, is sufficient to prevent the deposit flight from small, medium-sized banks in America to the SIBs? Nope. I think it is, uh, John, but it, it takes time for the message to get out there. All of us, obviously, are very zeroed in on this. We do it for a living. We look, eat and, and drink this stuff every single day, uh, but the regular folk, not, not so much. So as a result, I think the messaging has to get out there stronger to reassure everybody. And the community banks have to obviously reach out or the smaller regional banks reach out to their customers and point out that they're very well capitalized. The, the banks are profitable. This is not a credit problem, as you guys know. This is a problem with the bond portfolios being upside down. And, John, I liked your comments about what the 10-year government bond yield is doing today. That shrinks any unrealized losses because of the strength uh, in the bond market. So, Jared, the Treasury Department, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, as you know, but for those people just tuning in who haven't been maybe following this as closely, have wind down these institutions. They're looking to do that and, quote, fully protect all depositors. Jared, we're trying to work out the profit challenge here, the net interest margin story, how much the small banks will have to pay up for those deposits, how much they'll have to raise interest rates, where it leaves the major lenders. Over the weekend, I was thinking about this, Jared. If I'm a major bank right now, B of A, JP Morgan, I was expecting deposits just to line up at the door, no matter what the interest rate was on them. We'll just open accounts for you and we'll give you zero. You know, it's safe here. How's that going to change in the coming weeks? John, you, you, you're bringing up a very good point with the larger banks. If depositors are moving to them for safety, the concern about deposit betas going up for the biggest banks may actually go into reverse because, as you said, they don't need to maybe pay interest if somebody's moving there into, for safety. But you're right, on the smaller banks, they may be required to pay up for deposits um, due to the fact that there's this uncertainty. And again, it's obviously a very- All right, let's do a little catch up with what's going on. So uh, Biden speaks at 5 a.m., but I wanna give uh, sort of a summary to get you, uh, as said here, caught up on the latest and how, how the market is really moving this morning. It's, Really quite interesting, uh, actually pretty dramatic, especially if we look at bonds. So let's go ahead and catch you up with what the heck is going on. Uh, we'll call it um, actually this morning a little bit of a worsening of uh, what's happening in markets. So uh, here we go. So yesterday, the Federal Reserve U-turned and issued what was essentially a de facto 100% bailout of FDIC, even though that's not technically the way it works because we have a new BTFP facility. Yes, it literally sounds like or seems like it would stand for by the effing pivot <laughs> facility. It has its own particular name. That's not the actual name, but we'll just pretend it is because it's funny. But anyway, that's the Federal Reserve's program for providing $25 billion of Federal Reserve-backed liquidity to make sure that banks can go to the discount window at the New York Fed and basically hand them toxic assets. And the Federal Reserve, apparently without discounting those toxic assets, will give them money. Make no mistake, that is 
a bailout. Now, Joe Biden will be speaking and talking about how, don't worry, your money is safe with the banks. We have backstopped all reserves at banks. All deposits are safe. You don't need to go close your bank account at your local regional bank or your credit union. Fear not, because look, we are protecting all depositors. Don't worry that three banks have just collapsed in a span of five measly days. Don't worry. Everything is fine. And I hate to say it, but when people tell you everything is fine during a banking crisis, I hate to say it, but sometimes I think uh, thou protest too much. And I think that's the same thing that's happen with, happening with First Republic. First Republic yesterday let everyone know, don't worry, we have $70 billion in liquidity. We're fine to cover deposits. Their stock this morning, promptly down over 60%. After all, Silvergate closed on Wednesday. Silicon Valley Bank went into FDIC receivership on Friday and is being liquidated. No buyers showed up. So on Sunday, the Federal Reserve had to come out and U-turn to bail out a bank. And I understand they, they do not want you to think this is a bailout. But make no mistake, it's a bailout. Uh, and then at the same moment, Signature Bank collapses. That's a real estate lender who focused on wealthy clients, but made a failed crypto bet. And now the government has taken control of that bank as well. That's three banks down in five days. But don't worry, the Fed says everything is okay. There's nothing to worry about here. I don't know, folks. To me, I think there's a lot to worry about. And that kind of worry is what you're seeing show up in the market. The market does not seem to believe the Federal Reserve when they say this isn't a taxpayer-funded bailout. After all, the Fed is trying to clarify that this is just a loan to banks. And if there are any losses, don't worry. The other banks will just pay a special FDIC fee to cover those losses. I don't know about you, but that sounds a little bit like banking socialism to me. Oh, one bank failed? We'll just make everyone else pay their fair share of that bank making risky moves. And I think Jeffrey Gonlock, who's a pretty big bear right now, makes the best argument. He says, quote, So if I have this right, the Federal Reserve will make loans on some of the collateral at a par valuation that is worth 40% less. Yikes. Let me simplify that so you could see what the Fed is basically doing as Jeffrey explains it here. And then you tell me if you think this is a bailout or not. Because the government does not want you to believe this is a bailout. If a bank goes to the Fed, so here's the bank and here's the Fed. And we'll call this the discount window right here. And here's the banker. And the banker says, hey, I've got this uh, note right here. Uh, the note says it's worth $10 or we'll say it's $100. The note says it's worth $100. Don't mind the fact that it's actually lost about $60 of its value uh, in, in market value. So don't mind the fact that this is technically only worth $40. Don't mind that at all. Uh, will you take this toxic asset in exchange for $100 in cash? And the Federal Reserve is saying, yep, looks good to me. Here's $100. You're good. We'll take your toxic asset really only worth $40. But we'll tell the American people it's a one-for-one -one transaction because we don't want the American people thinking we're bailing out Silicon Valley. That'd be crazy. We don't want that at all. 
Now, then some people say, oh, but Kevin, this is a facility that set up 25 to 100 billion dollars of money uh, back during 2008, and they've set this facility aside for emergencies in the future. Well, all you have to do is go to the left-leaning Washington Post to realize who actually backstops that facility. Ah, it's the American taxpayer. So, anybody who tells you, no, this is not a bailout, the shareholders and the bondholders are getting effed, so they're getting punished. We're not bailing anyone out. Yeah, you are. You're bailing out the depositors. Now, of course, we don't want to see people get laid off. We don't want to see businesses go bankrupt. But let's be clear, the bank was known for giving risky loans and not asking that many questions. They had a white glove service for giving you mortgages if you were the founder of a startup, even if you didn't really have any income for your business. In other words, it was sort of the qualification metric of you're a startup and you're losing money. Here's a loan. Sounds like a great way to benefit as a depositor without taking any risk. Because the Federal Reserve basically just told the entire world there is no $250,000 FDIC insured limit. In fact, the limit is everything. We will make sure you don't lose a dime at the banks. In other words, the 2018 Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act, which basically reduced the regulation on smaller banks, which meant they were not considered too big to fail if they were under $250 billion inside, like Silver Bank or the other banks that have collapsed, is actually false. That's just a farce. The Federal Reserve thinks everything is too big to fail. And maybe that is a sign that things are actually a whole lot worse than they currently seem. Consider the fact that the last time the Federal Reserve got out of bed on a Sunday to actually do something was during the COVID pandemic, where in March, they U-turned on a Sunday and cut interest rates 2% on a Sunday. They couldn't even wait until Monday to do that. It's the same thing that happened yesterday, although, of course, the measure of it slightly different, one cutting rates, the other supporting a bank and basically bailing out banks. But the reality is the Fed woke up on a Sunday because this is a big issue. Now, going back to some of the standards of 2018, remember what 2018 did. It eliminated the Volcker rule for small banks. That basically was a rule that says small banks aren't allowed to speculate on their investments. And guess what? The 2018 act got rid of that. Silicon Valley Bank was one of the banks that was begging Congress to quote, CEO quote here, let workers save thousands of hours per year in stress tests and preparing resolution plans. We're just a lender. We're not a systemically important bank. That's what they lobbied in 2018 to reduce regulation. And now, oh no, we're systemically important. Please, taxpayers, bail us out. You literally can't make this stuff up. But the government and Joe Biden do not want you to think this is a bailout. Whatever you say, do not call this a bailout. We're just backstopping depositors. Nobody wants to see a depositor lose money, right? Yeah, maybe they got benefits from banks in terms of easy lending, easy lines of credit for money losing businesses, and basically white glove services for their founders. But don't worry, we're just backstopping the banking system because we don't want contagion. It's so bad that according to a, a representative in our House of Congress, he heard 
an individual in the Senate ask their committee, and this is all from Twitter, okay? This is Thomas Massive is the rep who's saying this. He says, quote, a Democratic senator literally asked whether there was a program in place on information to censor any social media information that could lead to a run on the banks. Boy, I got a big middle finger for you, Mr. Democratic Senator, because the last thing we want is to be censoring Americans while lying to them about the fact that this is not a bailout when the reality is it's a bailout. Remember, you can look this up. The Treasury Exchange Stabilization Fund ultimately backs the program that is known as the BTFP bailout facility. Yes, it, it's a stupid acronym, but the Treasury Exchange Stabilization Fund is backed by guess who? You. And that's why we're starting to see markets freak out. Because wait a minute, if we're being lied to about whether or not this is a bailout and the Federal Reserve is waking up on a Sunday to conduct this bailout, is it potentially possible that things are worse than they appear? And the answer is yes. You remember what the most painful part of the economic cycle is? It's not the inverting of the yield curve, folks. It is the steepening of the yield curve. If you look on screen now, I want you to see this yield curve plummeting. Now, on the far right, I'm gonna show you what the yield curve between the two year and the 10 year is doing today. You ready for this? Look at that, folks. That is a massive steepening of the yield curve. In other words, the 10-year treasury yield, the bond market is, is, is driving 10-year treasury yields down 12 basis points while driving the two-year treasury yield down over 28 basis points. In other words, the spread, the difference between the two, the 10-year is not falling as fast as the two-year is falling. The spread between the two is narrowing. That shows up in a chart as a steeper yield curve. Generally, it is the steepening of the yield curve that leads to the most pain in markets and leads the Federal Reserve to ultimately U-turn and bail out markets and turn the money printer on again to continue essentially their government-funded socialism. What do we have here? Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index, up. What do we have here? European bank stocks, all down. We expect to see a lot of that in America as well. What else do we have? We have the five-year break-even curve. Five-year break-even curve, rightfully so, plummeting because everybody's freaking out. Why is everyone freaking out? Well, because this is a big deal. A banking crisis in America is a form of a financial crisis. And there's a reason why markets are basically pricing in that the Federal Reserve is going to start cutting rates again. Look at this history. March 8th, what do you have? No rate cuts until 2024. You could see that by see the orange bars at the top. You really don't see an implied drop with certainty until approximately January of 2024. You could potentially argue that's about December of 2023, right around there. That's fine, fair game. Before March 8th, we definitely did not have a rate cut being priced in until about March of 2024. So you've seen the right rate cuts actually start getting priced in as soon as March 8th. What happened, uh, and, and you could sort of look at this and say November 2023, potentially the first, bringing it down to about five, six. A day later, 
we have November sitting around 5.4. A day later, in the morning, we have our first cut uh, sitting over here as a height of about 5.25, priced in for what looks like August. On March 10th in the evening, we have what looks like a 5.15% rate, uh, uh, terminal rate, or, or sort of a moment rate, uh, rate at the moment, uh, with a rate cut priced in as soon as or what looks like early August, but a lower level uh, than we had earlier in the day. Then what we have the very next day on the 12th is a curve that shows an even larger drop uh, at the beginning of August. So in other words, you could see this is becoming instead of a higher for longer curve, which looks like this, see the blue line, how it's elevated for longer, stretched out more. Look how it's quickly starting to get pulled down on the right side. It's kind of like, just look at the blue. It's kind of like somebody tied a little anchor. Oopsies, that's a little messy. Uh, that's the back of the desk. <laughs> it's kind of like somebody uh, pulled a little or tied a little uh, anchor to that blue line and then it just got yoinked down. That's a little bit what it feels like right there. You're yoinking down that right side of the curve. In other words, you're undoing higher for longer. And part of that is because markets are actually thinking, oh, good Lord, there is a chance. There is an actual real chance we might be breaking things. And as Michael Burry suggests, uh-oh, we are looking at a 2000 and 2008 financial crisis again. He says, quote, in 2000, 2008, and 2023 are all the same. People are full of hubris and greed and take stupid risks and fail. Money is then printed because it works so well. Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley tells us there are long and variable lags. And guess what's starting to show up now? Long and variable lags. German bond yields have fallen as rapidly today as they last did in 1987 on Black Monday. This is a big deal. And the contagion of the Federal Reserve and FDIC and Treasury Department bailing out Silicon Valley Bank probably won't end the bank run. Even Bill Ackman, who's been begging for a bailout from the government, suggests yeah, other banks are probably still going to fail. And so today, I wouldn't be surprised if the fears of a bank run continue. After all, a bank run generally isn't a logical process. A bank run is generally what happens when people make a relatively irrational decision of pulling all their cash out of a bank for fear that the bank is going to collapse. However, in defense of people taking money out of their banks, it's worth considering the following. If you're at a, let's just call it tier one bank, a deposit is basically a deposit because we expect that if the Federal Reserve is willing to bail out a not too big to fail bank, then you could pretty much guarantee they will run the money printer as much as they need to to backstop your money in a tier one bank. Bank of America, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citi, Goldman Sachs, and so on. A top eight bank, right? After all, those are the banks that go through the most rigorous Federal Reserve stress test, and those are the ones that the Federal Reserve says we trust and regulate the most, and we will do whatever we can to backstop them. 
That is now really considered a tier one style deposit, like deposit actually equals deposit. A tier two bank is sort of a question mark, like, okay, well, at what point are we no longer too big to fail? And maybe our deposits won't be risk-free uh, risk at all banks in the future. And if there is a non-zero chance of my deposits being at risk at a smaller bank, why would I bank at a smaller bank? Well, maybe you leave a few thousand bucks or whatever, and you say, or a few hundred bucks, whatever, and you keep a relationship, but you park most of your money where maybe it won't be as exposed to pain. Who knows? Or potential pain, there, dare I say. Who knows? But the point of all of this is simply to say, hey, look, this is very clear. It is a Federal Reserve bailout of depositors. It is something that is likely to cause a lot of volatility over the next few days. Again, we're seeing it in some of the bank stocks. All we have to do is look at the community banks like FRC. The thing is down 65% at the time of this recording. Bank of America is down 4%. Citi down 2.25%. JPM down 1%. The pain is here and it is likely to stay. In the meantime, bond yields are falling, which maybe that'll actually be good for real estate because after all, lower 10-year treasury yields might mean that real estate assets uh, end up being able to get lower access to mortgage rates. Unless, of course, the spread between bond yields and mortgage rates stays, or increases, should I say, then it's possible mortgage rates could stabilize, but I wouldn't be surprised if they come down. The real fear, though, again, is what happens in markets and what happens with the Federal Reserve. Will the Federal Reserve go for 50, 25, or zero? I've previously been arguing that the Federal Reserve is more likely to go zero than they are 50, thanks to the events that unfolded last week, Wednesday, Thursday, collapse of Silvergate, and of course, uh, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank on Friday, uh, with the leading indicators of that on Thursday. Well, sure enough, now markets are pricing in the highest likelihood of a 25 BP hike, a 0% chance of a 50 BP hike, and now a chance of a 0% hike. In other words, a Fed pause. JP Morgan is calling for a 25 basis point hike, but what is Goldman Sachs saying? Goldman Sachs is saying, now's the time to pause. Goldman Sachs is officially calling for the Federal Reserve to pause thanks to the uncertainty of this banking crisis, where we're not straight up today, we'll see what happens, but we expect a lot of volatility. So that gets you caught up on what's going on with the banking crisis. Check out the links down below on the courses on building your wealth for more insight. All right, let's take a listen over here. The region holds around one fourth of the globe's oil and natural gas resources. We're talking about NATO. Let's go ahead and jump on over then to Let's see what they have to say here. All right. And what it all means for the Fed and rates coming up. You don't want to go anywhere. Squawk Box returns after this. All right. Looks like they're going to escape to commercial. No problemo. So Joe Biden is technically scheduled to speak in about ooh, 17 minutes. He's typically always late, though. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's closer to like 30 minutes from now. But that's okay. We'll be here streaming anyway. We have uh, some releases of data and information coming out uh, this week as well. Let's go ahead and go through what we got here. Tuesday, we've got Lennar Q1 earnings. 
Small business optimism for Feb CPI, obviously on Tuesday. Good Lord, that's tomorrow already. Wow, we should look at uh, expectations for CPI. Let's do that. Let's see what the expectations are. <laughs> All right. Yeah, let's do an expectations look. Uh, let's see here. Yes. Uh, sound like the Grinch. All right. Well, we've got to talk expectations and what catalysts are coming up this week, especially after the maddening banking crisis that we've been going through. The Federal Reserve quote-unquote bailout. They don't want us to use that phrase, but they're just lying to us. And what's going on with expectations for CPI this week? So first things first, on a Tuesday, we're going to get Lennar earnings. We'll get a small business optimism survey. That survey is expected to come in with a read of 90.2. Prior read was 90.3. We have CPI, Consumer Price Index, expectations coming out for tomorrow at 5.30 a.m. We will be getting CPI readings. I will be streaming that live, so make sure you are here. 5.30 a.m. Pacific Time, 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And what do we have? Expectations are CPI, month over month, prior read, 0.5. This read, 0.4. That's 4.8% annualized. CPI, month over month, core, prior read, 0.4. This read expected to be 0.4. CPI, year over year. Prior read, 6.4. The current survey says 6%. CPI, X food and energy. In other words, core, year over year. Prior read, 5.6. Current read or survey, 5.5. That's going to be a big deal. Not only do we have that for Tuesday to prepare for, but we also have PPI and some other price indices coming up for the rest of the week. So let's go through all of those together. But first... When it comes to these expectations for CPI, it's really important to remember that that month-over-month -month number, in my opinion, is the most important. We want month-over-month -month headline and month-over-month -month core to hopefully miss to the lower side. Keep in mind, Joe Biden already gave us a spoiler alert on CPI. He said CPI will be coming in good on Tuesday. Now, who knows what kind of leak or information he got but I think that was a way of him trying to signal to markets, please don't panic on my watch. Inflation's going away. Everything is going to be A-OK. -okay. And as long as inflation goes away, the Federal Reserve can pivot. Now, is it possible that Joe Biden uh, is, is trying to soothe the economy and then potentially at the same time cook the CPI books? Sure, anything's possible. But the goal is from the side that we can actually look at data to hope CPI reads come in low and that would give the Federal Reserve more ammunition to backstop the economy as necessary and if necessary or as it continues to be necessary. Because personally, I think a $25 billion bailout for the banks is a little bit of a drop in the bucket compared to the toxic assets that they really have. But, but hey, then again, we'll see. Uh, after that, we have on uh, Wednesday, ooh, the Ides of March coming up. 
Uh, keep in mind, we also, uh, expiring next week, have a coupon code for the programs on building your wealth. All of them. It's the Stocks and Psychology of Money Group, most popular, Zero to Millionaire Real Estate Investing. Fantastic if you're trying to get into real estate, build your wealth. Uh, we've got the do-it-yourself property management and rental renovations. Really, there's a program for everyone in order to build their wealth, uh, whether you want to make more money as an entrepreneur, uh, an employee, real estate agent, content creator, you name it. Somebody actually gave a really nice shout out uh, yesterday. Uh, they mentioned that their presentation skills basically 10x uh, after taking my YouTube creator course uh, to help them in their presentations. They wrote, recommend your YouTube course to up your presentation game. I was good at it before, but I was told by a superior that my last training was the most informative and entertaining in the past 12 years thanks to your YouTube course. That was really cool. Uh, anyway, check that out uh, via the link down below. So moving on with these catalysts, Wednesday. We get, uh, oh, we do also get retail sales on Tuesday. Let's keep going with retail sales first then. So, uh, oops, nope, sorry, I put that in the wrong spot. Retail sales is Wednesday, I was right about that. Okay, retail sales Wednesday. Uh, retail sales expected to come in at 0.4 to the downside month over month, excluding auto, we're looking for negative 0.1, excluding auto and gas, negative 0.3. Retail sales controls, negative 0.3. That stands in stark contrast to the numbers that we had in January. In January, you literally had negative 0.4, negative 0.1, negative 0.3, negative, uh, or sorry, that's, those are the expectations, negative 3. Uh, that's the expectation now for February. What you actually had right before that in January was 3%, 2.3%, 2.6%, 1.7%. So a massive cooling of retail sales is expected on Wednesday. That report comes out at 5.30 a.m. Right at the same time as we get the PPI numbers. Oh my gosh, so much stuff. CPI on Tuesday, PPI on Wednesday, retail sales on Wednesday. And here are the PPI numbers, which is the producer price index. The last PPI read, we had a month over month PPI of 0.7. That's terrible, that's 8.4% annualized. What did we end up getting in survey this time? 0.3. PPI core month over month, 0.4 is the expectation, down from 0.5 last time. PPI X food, energy, and trade, uh, 0.3 versus 0.6 the last time. Final demand, 5.4 versus 6 last time. So now that will be on uh, Wednesday. On Tuesday, we also get Adobe Q1 earnings. Uh, Wednesday, we get the National Association of Home Builders uh, calling for a read of 40 on housing market optimism indices. That is uh, slightly higher than uh, what we had in December, which is the lowest level that we've seen in a decade for home builder confidence. Thursday, we get Dollar General and FedEx conference calls. We're going to be looking for evidence of potentially a wage price spiral. And on Friday, we get the University of Michigan's forecast for consumer sentiment, looking for a read of about 67.4. Now, a lot of course is being made of a wage price spiral because a lot of people are expecting that a wage price spiral is exactly what could lead to the essential unleashing of a Paul Volcker, where basically markets get rug pulled, where interest rates have to skyrocket in order to event a prevent a wage price spiral. Barron's, uh, and, and look, I've argued this plenty of time before, so I don't want to sound redundant that we're, we're seeing uh, a lack of pricing power for wages, whether it's in healthcare or even retail hospitality, it's a lot easier to find people. Uber, Lyft are talking about it. Chipotle's talking about it. Starbucks is talking about it. Uh, the software companies are talking about it. Uh, these are all in earnings calls. It's very clear there's really no wage price spiral, which is good, and those conditions could change, but knock on wood, they don't. Barron's, though, uh, did have a piece in their uh, Sunday magazine or Saturday magazine 
Uh, anyway, uh, they talk about that talk about a wage price spiral. It's wrong. Fear among policymakers and others that accelerating wages must push prices up is basically wrong. And so they give this sort of analysis where they say, look, if prices go up 5% and wages go up 5%, but productivity also goes up a little bit, then wages really only went up about 3%. And labor only contributes about 80% to the cost of producing goods uh, and services. So then that's really only like a 2.4% increase. And then since we can reduce uh, these sort of increases by housing services as well, then a 5% increase in wages really only increases CPI by about 1.4%. This is their crazy math for how they came to this conclusion, but they're basically trying to make the argument that what wage price spiral? There's no wage price spiral here. But that does, aside from sort of their funny math, it is reiterated by what's actually happening in the data. So they're not necessarily wrong here, even though I think their math is a little bit of a stretch. I think what's more important for markets this week will obviously be the Silicon Valley banking crisis. How much is that going to lead to bank runs at other banks? I'm going to be flying over to a NorCal. So if you're, if you're in NorCal, slide into the DMs on Twitter or IG. I will be uh, probably in the Santa Clara, Palo Alto, San Jose region today. Uh, I want to see what's going on at the banks. I want to meet some VCs. So if you're a startup founder or uh, a VC, I, I would love to talk to you. Uh, so hit me up in the DMs. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. But uh, yeah, uh, wow. Okay, a lot of catalysts this week. They're going to be big things we want to pay attention to. All right, let's listen in over here for a moment. Mm -hmm. You don't think that, that you and your, your colleagues were bailed out? If SVB had not been rescued and those deposits had gone, those businesses would have gone under, likely. Uh, your investments would have gone under, likely. Um, your carried interest would have gone under, <coughs> likely. Um, you don't I think, think, I that, think the, uh, that the government rescued you so today? the bank, from our standpoint, was in, in general in good uh, footing. It had enough assets uh, to be able to manage its operations. And frankly, uh, from what I know, it could have been open for business on Friday as well. But the deposit outflows were so much that the FDIC correctly decided not to take risk. So our, our hope, had FDIC not stepped in, was that there was enough coverage to be able to you know, sell those securities and recover the deposits. Uh, and uh, honestly, to me, this whole thing came about because um, these, this bank wasn't ready for rapid interest rate increases. Right. And, sure, uh, but, but I, the coverage I, ratios I, were I, there. I ask this because you have, I would say, a lot of vocal venture capitalists um, who have sort of have a libertarian streak, uh, who don't believe in, in government, oftentimes are against regulation. We talk about carried interest on the program all the time. Venture capitalists say that they... Uh, should uh, pay less than, than, frankly, everybody else. And I wonder, on a morning like this, do you say, you know what? Thanks. Thank, thank, thanks thanks I, for helping I, us. I think we uh, absolutely, first of all, I absolutely believe in the government. And I think the government stepped in in exactly the right time and, and very grateful that they did because this would have caused an issue for thousands of companies and millions of people that were hoping to get paid uh, this week. So I, I, I don't think... Um, uh, this crisis would have been averted had the government not stepped in. Absolutely. Hey, Mont, we very much appreciate you joining us. I'm sorry that you had to go through this all weekend. Uh, we hope this is the end of it, uh, but of course we'll keep our eyes on all of it, and we hope you'll come on back um, as as. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I think it's very interesting. I mean, I, I think CNBC actually had a very good point there, asking like, "Hey, you know, like, 
You realize this bailed out a lot of venture capital investors, right? Like, isn't this kind of a bailout by potentially taxpayers of Silicon Valley? Yes. Charles Payne actually had an interesting argument yesterday. He suggested that, hey, um, uh, let's fix that, there we go. Charles Payne suggested yesterday, if this was called the Bank of East Palestine, uh, in other words, where the train derailment was, would we have seen this sort of bailout? You know, a little jaded, but uh, it's an interesting potentially uh, point of view that, hey, if an area doesn't necessarily have the political or wealth connections, maybe they wouldn't have gotten the attention uh, and, and the bailout. Maybe this would have been just sort of some random regional bank that ended up getting bailed out or or not. Maybe it would have collapsed, right, because it, it didn't have the, uh, uh, the sort of backing. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, I want to give a few notes here. Uh, oh, that's quite interesting. Uh, okay, so um, Joe Biden is supposed to speak soon. We'll, we'll see. We're waiting for that. Uh, we've got about four minutes tentatively uh, before he's scheduled to speak. We'll see what ends up happening. Uh, we've got, uh, let's see here. <laughs> you actually have a home, the Home Depot co-founder who started talking about uh, this as well, talking about how he cannot wait for Joe Biden's uh, speech on this. Uh, that's quite interesting. We'll see what happens. Um, I, I really think most of it is going to be, uh, hey, we didn't bail anything out. Everything's good. We're good here. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, remarks on the economy. It looks like potentially, oh, did they deliver, or they may have delayed this. It looks to me like Biden delivers remarks on the economy may have gotten pushed back, but we'll see. Right now, the schedule that I'm seeing here, at least uh, on their channel here, is that we've got another potentially, uh, okay, now they, it looks like they're just now actively changing it. It said 6.15, now it says 6, we were told 5. <laughs> Oh, Biden. Uh, whatever. As soon as he goes live, we'll obviously uh, we'll, we'll cover it and we'll see what's going on. But uh, some of the remarks by uh, even the, the CEO of Home Depot were quite interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll give you those. Here they are. Uh, listen to this. You've got the CEO of Home Depot. Chi oh, not CEO. Let me rephrase that. Listen to this. You've got the co-founder of Home Depot chiming in on this banking crisis. That's how bad this is getting. He's saying, maybe the American people will finally wake up and understand that we're living in very tough times. In fact, that a recession may have already started. Who knows, he says. He goes on to say, quote, these banks are badly run because everybody is focused on diversity of the woke issues and not concentrating on one th the one thing they should, which is shareholder returns and protecting their shareholders and their employees. Instead, they're more concerned about social policies and they think that these banks are basically badly run. Yikes. This is a rebuke from the co-founder of Home Depot, Mr. Marcus, slamming the banking crisis. We've got a lot to talk about with the banking crisis. Remember, we've got those uh, coupon codes linked down below for the programs on building your wealth. And I'll be in the Silicon Valley area today. So DM me on Twitter or Instagram if you want to share your story as a VC or a founder of a startup. Alrighty then. Now we have more to cover. Let's see here. We have... Uh -huh. I'm going to try to get a little update on for sure when Joe Biden is talking, but it appears the uh, 
The talk may have been delayed a little bit. Let's listen in to CNBC just for a moment to see. U.S. financial history, two banks closed, another recapitalized, all uninsured deposits across the country, guaranteed across the banking system. Steve Leisman joins us with a look at what's been fixed and, yes, the concerns that remain. Andrew, I think the 40,000-foot view of these events of this weekend is this. We have replaced short-term uncertainty, especially the possibility of a banking crisis today, with the medium and long-term uncertainty about the banking system, the Fed, and the economy, with the question of how much the time we've bought will solve these problems. So take a look. Here, here this is what David Rosenberg says. This is what happens when the Fed takes the punch bowl away. The bowl breaks and the central bank and the regulators respond with glue. Is it just glue? Take a look at what's happened here. Uh, SVB signature, they have been resolved. Uninsured deposits guaranteed across the country. A new Fed fund has been established to finance banks at par with their assets rather than at the market value. Duration risk reckoning, that is the need to re reckon with those that duration risk, has been removed but not necessarily resolved over any period of time longer than a year. But as we've discussed all morning, investors in the nation as a whole, they're left with a series of profound questions that are as yet resolved. Here's what we don't know. The impact on the Federal Reserve and their monetary policy. Do they pause or continue hiking? Will uninsured depositors feel safe in smaller banks now that those deposits have been insured? How will banks pay for this depositor guarantee they have now been gifted? What were the bank where were the bank regulators when all of this was going on? And can banks fix their duration risk in the year that they've now right. been yeah, provided? The outlook for Fed rate hikes has declined dramatically, with Goldman Sachs forecasting a pause in March, then resuming hikes in May, June, and July. Here's where we are right now. This is the outlook for the peak rate, 473. You can see how much has come off uh, that peak rate forecast. Uh, somebody do the math for me. Uh, whatever 27 and 70 is, what is it, 97? Almost a percentage point, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty much, more or less, good enough for rock and roll right there. There are two opposing impacts on the economy. Lower rates, including uh, lower mortgage rates and higher-valued bank collateral, that's potentially positive for economic activity and inflation. But the need for banks to pay higher interest rates on deposits and overall uncertainty could dampen the economy. The uncertainty over how all this plays out could stay the Fed's hands, at least for March, even amid continued inflation concerns. Rosenberg's idea that the banking crisis results from the lagged effects of aggressive rate hikes, that's why I started with it, is right. another reason for Fed caution. And I'm ending there, Becky, because I believe our next guest has the opposite point of view. Okay, well, let's hear Steve, it. stay here. Let's work through some of this right now. We want to bring in everything that's been happening. We want to bring in Mohammed El Arian, Allianz and Gramercy Advisors and president of Queens College, Cambridge. And Mohammed, I'll ask you a question that we brought up at 5 a.m. this morning. Look, this may be a situation where the crisis is averted, but is it mission accomplished? Nope. Well, we've changed the system. I think Roger Altman was absolutely correct in saying that we are now in a different world. Did we need to do all this? I think given the urgency over the weekend and the fact that there was no perfect policy response, um, we had to make some compromises. However, it is why we are here that is important because that gives you insights on where we should be going from here. And we're here, Becky, basically because we had a prolonged period of overly loose monetary policy. When it came to adjusting monetary policy, the Fed did not act fast enough. 
And then it had to hit on the brakes. And you've heard me say over and over again, when you hit the brakes, you risk both economic and financial accidents. And we've just lived through a financial yeah. accident. Okay, yeah. so is the bigger concern next whether other banks will have similar issues or is the bigger risk that the Fed's going to have to not raise rates next time around and that inflation uh, continues to, to rage on and maybe gets further out of control? So three things. One, it's important to stress depositors should not worry. Your deposits oh. are fine. And there is no need this is like famous last words to move your deposits. I know, I know there's an inclination to do so. I heard what you did, Becky. I know there's an inclination to do so, because after all, it's better to be safe than sorry. But honestly, there is no no risk to your deposits anymore. That's the clear message. Any deposits above two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or below? Like, would you say that there's oh, no, no, no limit I, I mean, to deposits that are insured from here on out? It is almost impossible now to go back on unlimited deposit guarantee. And yeah. you know what? There's a case Not for wrong. them. Deposits are right at the top of the capital structure. They are very different from um, bonds, from unsecured bonds, from equity. And depositors shouldn't be expected to be able to do the risk assessments that equity holders and bondholders can do. So, you know, I'm actually quite sympathetic. It's not a great way to do it, but I'm quite sympathetic. I wouldn't have gone as far as they did, but I understand why they did. Um, so that's not the case. But however, people are revisiting rightly the value of bank stocks and bank bonds. And then markets have basically voted already that the Fed will now back away from its inflation fight. And that's not good for the long term. Hey, Mohammed, real quick, I just uh, there's a news release out uh, from SVB, uh, or at least what's left of it, uh, saying that they're, as you might imagine, uh, exploring strategic alternatives. They've hired Centerview, Sullivan and Cromwell at this point. Um, clearly, there have been no buyers for it up till now, uh, but they are hoping, they say, uh, to find a buyer. Of course, we'll keep our eyes on this, but uh, literally that crossing, literally uh, as we, as you were speaking, I should say. It's yeah. the holding company, SVB Financial yes. Group, and they are talking about exploring alternatives for about $3 billion of funded debt that's held by the holding company, uh, which is recourse only to SVB right. Financial Group and is not guaranteed by the subsidiaries, one of which we saw taken over yeah. in the UK today. Of course, part of the question here is whether you actually want to own anything. I mean, whether you even need them, whether you need their clients. We've talked about how flighty their clients uh, have, have been. So it's not like you're getting them. They're not really coming with this. Uh, here's what I know. A regulator I talked to on Friday suggested that the regulators made a mistake by separating the assets and the liabilities. Right. It looks like they put them back together this morning in a bridge bank to try to sell it all together. Um, I don't know if this release is saying now they can't sell it. Are they going to liquidate it or... Is that the implication of this release? Reading through. Let, let's let's let, let's wait. Capital funds are separate legal entities. They're distinct from Silicon Valley Bank. That's the capital fund. Okay. And portfolio investments are owned by the SBB Capital Bond. Uh, let funds. me let me ask Mohammed a, a question about monetary policy. Mohammed, I, I came up with a list in my report there about things that were inflationary and disinflationary about these events right here. Um, you know, everybody knows you as a person perfectly qualified to sit on that board and make this decision. You're sitting there. Now, obviously, we don't know what the inflation report's going to say on, uh, what is it, Wednesday. But let's assume it comes in around where we think it's going to be. 
What do you do next week? Do you go and give the market a 25 basis point rate hike? Steve, can I just clarify? No. This sure. is SVB Capital, which is right. the venture capital and private okay. credit fund, and SVB Securities, which is their investment bank. So right. Keep in mind, that is what's priced in right now, is 25 BP, though there's a slight chance of the zero, which is kind of what I was thinking. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we stick with 25. But he would do, and he was a vice chair at the Fed. Um, I would raise 25 basis points. I would make it yep. very clear that I have a set of tools to deal both with inflation and financial stability. And I will not confuse those tools because if I do so, and, and that is the lesson of the last few years, every time we do so, we fall in the muddled middle and we are worse off. So I would hike by 25 basis points, explaining that I have these other tools, which are really powerful as we've discovered. Um, I have these other tools that I can use for financial stability reasons. Let me let me argue back on this, which was the David Rosenberg argument that I also posited, uh, Mohammed, which is that what we saw with SVB was the lagged effects of monetary policy hitting the financial system, and those lagged effects are, in their conclusion, disinflationary. Would you wait to see if there were additional, for lack of a better term, shoes to drop here in the financial system? Steve, we have an inflation problem. And the longer we allow it to get embedded into the system, the greater the cost right. to society. And we may end up in stagflation, which would be miserable, not just for markets. Most importantly, it would be miserable for the Americans. And most right. importantly, those, those Mom, in, in- Let me, let me posit to you that this whole situation this weekend, not just at SVB, but across the banking system is going to be disinflationary, which is to say, that all of these small regional banks, which were not systemically important, are now systemically important. They're going to have to have higher capital ratios. means that capital is going to be more expensive for consumers, for businesses, for everybody. And that will be disinflationary on the economy. Is that piece of the calculation, which wasn't in the calculation, I don't think, a week ago, does that change the dynamic? It's certainly a possibility. Um, I can give you another scenario that says that what we've just gone through will be stagflationary. Okay, so there are many scenarios, and I've been encouraging people to think in terms of scenario analyses. Something else, Andrew and Becky, you were talking about earlier, what we haven't done enough of this morning is compare the U.S. reaction to the U.K. reaction. The U.K. reaction took a private sector approach, um, finding another institution to take over SVP. Now, no doubt SVP UK was smaller and therefore easier to do, but the aversion to moral hazard and policy co-option here is much higher in the UK than it is in the US. So it's interesting also to compare and contrast well, the different I, approaches. Mohammed, could they, could they find a private buyer? I mean, with a lot of the things that happened here, we've talked about how JPM, uh, JP Morgan's takeover of Bear Stearns during the financial crisis, they got tagged with any of the you know, they were sued for any of the misbehavior that took place at Bear Stearns before they took it over, when they had the weekend to figure it out and buy it. That's a pretty huge disincentive for any of the big banks to say, okay, I'll buy it in a weekend. Yeah, I mean, they, they could, the, the government had decisions to make, and they opted clearly for this universal, no-limit deposit insurance, and they opted for taking duration risk off the banks by the new window at the Fed. Those are decisions that also have side effects and unintended consequences. Um, I go back and I wrote it in an FT op-ed this weekend. There were no perfect solutions here. This yeah. is the result of a series of policy errors that we now have to deal with the consequences. 
And what it tells us very clearly is that the economy is, is more at risk and financial accidents are right. more likely because of all the mistakes that have been made, particularly by the Fed in the last few years. I've been warning with, right. with this but are you about blaming this. The, you, look, the question is, do you blame the Fed and say Jay Powell did not take these issues into consideration and should have? Do you blame the regulators? Do you blame the executives of the banks? And what kind of personal responsibility do you think that the business leaders who put their money in this bank, uninsured, have? So everybody is in this blame game because we had an environment for too long of ultra-loose monetary policy where money was cheap, there was so much liquidity floating around that everybody could get a loan, and that encourages excessive risk-taking. In, in the lead up to 2008, it was the private credit factories that were producing over time. This time around, it was the public, it was the central bank credit factories that were over producing over time. Then we had a period where we could have adjusted, but we called inflation transitory. And then we didn't move fast enough. So we then had to slam on the brakes. That if you're sitting in the back of a car and the driver's driving the way that they've been driving, you would be sick too, Andrew. Okay. <laughs> Can I just tell everybody, I want to take a look very quickly at the markets. Mohammed, stick with us for just a second. The Dow futures are now down by over 300 points. This happened very rapidly in the last Something. few minutes. The S&P futures are off by 27. NASDAQ still up, but only by about 20 points. This is happening as rates came under additional pressure, too. Take a look at the yields. The 10-year is now just at 3.513%. Wow. The two-year is below 4.2%. It's a 4.174%. I think it's probably also worth taking a look at oil prices, which were only down by about 1%, but are now off by 4.7% oh. to 73. That's recessionary right there. Very yes. risk-off trade going on yep. right now. And a flight that, uh, That's just fear. Who sat there under our grilling, you know, I just, he's, yeah. he's so good at that. But, but right now, the market is saying something different. The market is saying less Fed, less inflation. I think this more is disinflationary. He thinks less it's, economic activity. He thinks there's stag. He, you know, his argument is it's a stagflation story. He says we have an inflation problem. Wants the Fed to continue to focus on that. No possible way of saying he's wrong about that because it may end up being true depending upon the inflation. And by the way, I'll tell you who's been right: Roger Ferguson. Can, I, can we come back to Mohammed for just a moment? Yeah, uh, Mohammed. Just the idea that. Uh, you know, if the Fed were actually to hike rates again and ad an additional 25 basis points, even if it's warranted by inflation, the additional pressure that that could put on the banks, because, again, we, we're talking about this year that they have to get rid of some of the hold to maturity debts. But if you look at some of these banks, there are some very big numbers of how much they would have to move at that point. And by the way, I believe if you take any of your hold to maturity and actually say, okay, we're taking it off. You, it's, there's an accounting change that you have to take the whole thing at that point and fess up that here are my unrealized losses across the board and that has to come onto your balance sheet. So unless you are willing to go and be able to get all of it cleared up instantaneously, it's gonna be a big change to your balance sheet that people may not have realized before. You have to look, dig pretty deeply for some of these numbers that are out there. What, what are your thoughts? If the Fed's thinking that, what's, what's the harm in saying we're gonna hold off at least for this next go around next week to the next time. So Becky, we are deep in the world of second best. And you've heard me say this, you know, we, we've given up on our first best. So yes, you know, that, that is also a possibility, um, but then it has consequences. 
we are just on a very, very bumpy road. That's what I want to stress, a bumpy road. There are no longer perfect policy reactions. We've lost that window. So, yes, there are going to be consequences, and investors face a really tricky environment, as does the economy right now. Speaking of that tricky environment, there is now a 66% probability of no hike in the market, which wow. goes right along with what happened with the wow. two-year. We are baking out or have baked out the possibility the Fed is going to hike. I guess that could change with the CPI number, but that's where we are at this moment. There's going to be a lot of volatility, I think, in fixed income markets that's going to roll over into uh, security markets, equity markets today. Mohammed, want to thank you for your time this morning. We appreciate it. And by the way, speaking of volatility, let's call that up, too, because someone on Twitter just pointed out, Bob Lang said, check out the VIX. It's back up again. So let's check that out right now. Yeah, it's up 17% this morning. Nice. 29, back and above 29 um, at this hour. Andrew? Okay, coming up, uh, we will talk about is the rescue of Silicon Bank, Valley Bank a bailout or not? We're going to talk to a journalist who's been on this story since yes. the beginning. And later this hour, we're going to speak with a prominent venture capitalist and the co-founder of Reddit, Alexis Ohanian. Take a look at stocks leading and lagging in the S&P 500 pre-market session. Right now, you're looking at Illumina and Health Peak up in a big way. But then there's some biggies falling. First Republic Bank off about 65% despite help from the Federal Reserve and J.P. Morgan this morning. Stay tuned. You're watching Squawk Box, and this is CNBC. <laughs> I love this tweet. Uh, there's a tweet here. Let's hike by 25 BP and then cut by 25 the next day. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's almost somewhat what things are feeling like right now. Look, uh, the, the steepening yield curve, I think, is just insane right now, what's happening. It's uh, it's pretty remarkable because what you're seeing is the 10-year and the 2-year plummeting. I mean, these are some of the most volatile moves uh, that we've seen here in, in quite frankly, uh, with the exception of last week and this week, really since 2008. I mean, the fact is you've got the 10-year now down 18.4 basis points. The two-year yield is down 44 basis points. Uh, now, understand quickly how, how that works, because I think sometimes it's a little difficult to visualize that inversion. But think about it like this. If your 10-year was uh, 4%, right, and this is your 10, and your two-year was 5% uh, right here, then you have a spread of 1%, right? That's your spread. Well, if the five or the two year rather is now falling 44 basis points, uh, and actually more than that because it's fallen a few days in a row, right? But anyway, the point is if this falls 44 basis points and the 10 year uh, only falls 22, I'll put it up there to make it a little clearer, uh, then really the yield curve is steepening. That's the point. The spread between those is shrinking. You used to have a 1% spread. Now you're sitting at somewhere like maybe call it a 0.6% spread, right? And uh, that looks like a steepening because when you look at a chart uh, and you draw the chart and you go, oh, look, it's as low as negative 1%. Now it's gone up to negative 0.6%. See? See how it's steepening? <laughs> uh, anyway, I thought that would be useful to kind of Try to visualize that a little bit better. But uh, yeah, th those are some really big moves. And uh, interestingly, it that, that could, uh, could be actually good for real estate uh, unless it creates just panic, right? Uh, well, then you might actually have best case scenario. Like 
quite frankly, the best time to buy real estate is when everybody's freaking out and rates are low. The last time we had that, quite frankly, was March and April of 2020. Uh, I remember making videos uh, on the channel here going, uh, refinance and get ready to buy. <laughs> uh, and that's exactly what we did uh, out here in Cali. Uh, Lauren and I, we added about uh, eight to nine properties to our portfolio between April and about October of 2020. It ended up being perfect. Uh, but anyway, it, it'll be really interesting to see if these, these 10 years keep falling. We'll see uh, Biden will be up, it uh, looks like, in about 40 minutes. Uh, Five-year break-evens went down as well. That's true. Hold on. What's this breaking news they say? I don't think there's anything see breaking. The markets are going to react. Well, the markets, maybe. <laughs> Silicon Valley Bank going down. The Fed's stepping in. You're going to see right now that the Dow futures are down by about 258 points. Yeah, she's That's just reiterating that. Let's go ahead and jump to Bloomberg for a moment, see if they have anything new. Mm-hmm. President is going to speak at 9 a.m., something, you know, we weren't really expecting over the weekend. But then after last night's news, uh, they've come out and said he's actually going to address the American people. I think Jonathan Maker made a really good point earlier, which is that this administration wants to make sure to everyday Americans that this was not a bailout. These depositors that even if you are below the threshold, these depositors all being insured, that statement said all money would be returned and you have access to it today, they want to make sure that they know that, that is not taxpayer dollars. That's going to be one thing I think the president will want to emphasize. And I'll also want to talk about the fact that they had to move promptly because I guess that means they were concerned of potential risks further in the, in the financial uh, markets and they wanted to protect everyday consumers. The other thing is you can expect, the president said in his statement, I am firmly committed to holding those responsible for this mess fully accountable and to continuing our efforts to strengthen <clears throat> oversight and regulation of larger banks who are not in this position again. That opens yeah. up a field of what Congress could potentially do following this chaos. So this goes back to 2018. The Trump administration, the Republicans, there was a bill to unwind some of the regulation around smaller lenders, smaller banks, regionals. MH, I believe there were 17 Democrats that voted alongside Republicans on that bill. Are we saying that they're going to push to unwind much of that in the coming months? They're not going to do well, anything. Well, there was 17 uh, Democrats that voted alongside Republicans for that bill. Jonathan, you are correct. You have to look at some of who some of these individuals were. They were in states that Trump won. So politically, this is something that they wanted to lean into because a lot of them were up for re-election. And then there was just a handful as well. There's a lot of bank lobbyists out uh, in full force during this time trying to get them to unwind some of this. Many of them, like uh, the, the one of the Dakota senators, um, Heidi Henkamp, had come out and said they don't understand the rural regional issues we are facing. So the issue now is, will those Democrats, some that are still senators today, that voted for this, like Senator uh, Warner of Virginia, Senator Coons of Delaware, would they be on board of rolling back that deregulation? We already heard from Senator Elizabeth Warren. We've already heard from Senator Bernie Sanders. They are saying that 2018 law needs to be deregulated. But for Trump, he said this was a bipartisan issue because 17 of those Democrats signed up for it. What's going to be the consequence for some of the managed teams of banks that do have to tap into the resources, that do uh, struggle with some of the potential mark-to-mark -mark losses on portfolios that they did have control over. 
I think what you're going to see in terms of consequences in Washington is that there will be hearings in Congress. I mean, that that yeah. is almost without a doubt. There will be hearings. That's like doing nothing. <laughs> oh my God, there are going to be hearings? For Signature Bank, you could expect Congress to call these individuals uh, of the Ooh. C-suite of these companies before the Hill and testify on what went wrong and try to Ooh. draft how they can avoid this in the future. MX, just pushing forward, the brilliant David Weston's going to stand aside. He's going to focus on Wall Street Week through the rest of this year. I'm looking forward to his coverage. You're going to step in with Joe Matthew to balance of power. I understand the time of that's going to move, so it's going to be at 5 p.m. Eastern time, a little bit later this afternoon. AMH, first show today. What a way to kick it off. I mean, I mean it's a slow news day. It's it a way right. that can ease into it's it. It's almost like AMH engineered it. <laughs> Amory, what are you focused on a little bit later? Yeah, quick note here. Bo <laughs> Bobo the Clown uh, says uh, in chat here, HSBC buys Silicon Valley Bank UK protecting deposits. Yes, this is something that was talked about yesterday as well. Worth noting that they're buying it for $1. <laughs> Obviously a much smaller uh, financial institution in the UK than, than here in America, but let's keep going. Uh, good morning, Kevin. You say oil price recession trouble? Uh, yeah, look, I've been calling for oil prices to drop for probably two, three months now. Big fan of, of thinking uh, that those prices are coming down. Everybody was freaking out about, oh, China's reopening is going to send oil up. I'm like, no. Uh, now, so far, that's been the right bet. Uh, we'll see what ends up happening, though. Uh, let's keep listening in over here. Two hearings last week, another kind of awkward moment. Remember all those Republicans were telling him, warning him to ease up on the capital requirements for banks just last week. Can you imagine if we redid the hearings again this week, just how different they'd be? They'd, just, they'd be so different, Tom. My recollection of 08, long ago and far away, it seems like it was yesterday, is it was the same ugliness there where you looked at some authority and what they said three days before was embarrassing. Just changes. Amory, yeah. looking forward to the show a little bit later with Joe Matthew, <clears throat> 5 p.m. Eastern time. That's Balance of Power on TV and radio. In the next hour on Bloomberg TV... Massive lineup, loads of people offering their views on the situation. Peter Shear of Academy, Michael Contopoulos of Richard Bernstein Advisors, Amy Wu Silverman of RBC. You cannot make this up. I feel so bad for this guy. <laughs> but you can't make this stuff up. So you all remember Jim Cramer with Bear Stearns. Then you remember uh, Jim Cramer with Silicon Valley Bank pitching it as a steal around $320. Look at what I just saw on Twitter. <laughs> I don't I don't know if this is fake or if it's true. Uh, but, um, yeah. This stock, uh, this was posted apparently on March 10th. And the stock right now in pre-market is down 64% following a 15% decline on Friday. Oh, oh man. Tuesday's dates are and then all of a sudden... It's not irrelevant <laughs> at all. We don't care. It's so much more than that, Lisa. Well, the long and variable lags, it's suddenly becoming relevant again. Are we there in terms of the long and variable lags? And that seems to be the implication of markets. Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley says those long and variable lags I, have arrived, Tom. They're here right now. 35-year chart, almost back to Volcker. The log slope of Fed action is unprecedented. How quickly they moved. Equity futures, negative four-tenths of 1% from New York City. Wow, the two-year now down 50 bips. Are you serious? It's plummeting. It was just down 40. We were literally just covering this, and the darn two-year was down 40. Now it's down 50. Oh, my gosh, yeah. The 10-year is now down almost 22 basis points. The two-year down 50 basis points right now. 
Holy smokes. So the way that works is basically people are buying the crap out of bonds right now because they're freaking out about a recession in the near term. Ooh. Um, so that if you own bonds, that means the value is going up. Uh, fortunately for my real estate startup, we own lots of bonds. But uh, take a look at this. 0.551 basis points down on the two-year. That's just insane. I mean, so the, we have not seen moves like this since uh, the days of Black Monday back in uh, 1987. Uh, that's, woof, woof. That's insane. Uh, all right, so let's see here. Joe Biden talks in about 30 minutes. He'll probably be late because he pretty much always is. And uh, yeah, let's do a quick little quick little segment on China while we wait. Uh, I'll give you a quick little update here on China uh, as we wait for more updates and more news. So let's do that. Uh, do I remember you saying when the curve steepens, that's the most pain? Yes, that's usually when stuff breaks. That's literally what history says, and sure enough, here it is. Stuff's breaking, yield curve is steepening, you know, one leading to the other. It doesn't so much matter. It's just that's what tends to happen. Generally, a recession isn't actually over until the yield curve breaks that steepening. But anyway, uh, okay, so this, this should be a pretty quick update. So let's knock this out really quick. China is apparently going to be speaking with President Zelensky at the same, well, maybe not exactly at the same time, but while also expecting very soon to meet in person with Vladimir Putin. This is actually leading a lot of folks to think that Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party might be actually trying their best to broker a peace deal between Ukraine and Russia. The Washington Post ran a great piece this morning talking about how much of a terrible mistake it would be for China to arm Ukraine and to arm Russia. And quite frankly, if China is trying to negotiate peace, maybe they're going to hold off on sending arms over to Russia, actual lethal weapons over to Russia. And maybe we can get to an end of this crisis because quite frankly, what we really need is inflation to come down, the banking crises to end, and this war between Russia and Ukraine to end. The Washington Post's editorial board this morning, that basically reflects the opinion of the board over at the Washington Post, uh, they, they posted a thorough piece this morning talking about how Beijing would actually be shooting itself in the foot if they end up not negotiating between Ukraine and Russia and instead arming Russia because they're going to end up pissing off their trading partners. And guess who the largest trading partners for China are? Well, it ain't Russia. Russia is China's 15th largest export donation or destination, making up just 2% of all of China's exports. The US and NATO, on the other hand, make up 25% of Chinese exports. Then you've also got uh, India and Brazil, who are relatively neutral countries in this conflict, who don't want conflict to continue. They don't want uh, China 
contributing to the conflict extending. Neither does Colombia. Many countries coming out against uh, really continuing this war. Beijing right now is considering sending artillery shells to Russia, given that Russia is sending about 10,000 artillery shells a day over to Ukraine, which is quite alarming. Uh, but at the same time, if China does end up starting to send actual lethal weapons like artillery shells, they'll probably take the opportunity for them to actually negotiate a settlement between Zelensky and Russia. Zelensky made a speech last night bragging about heavy Russian losses and Bakhmut, talking about how they got 1,500 Russians. Nobody actually really believes that because everything basically is just war propaganda. But what's most important is the optimism around Xi Jinping talking with Zelensky while at the same time also trying to meet with Vladimir Putin to try to negotiate a settlement between the two countries. Now remember, China has offered a negotiation, all, uh, a negotiation settlement in the past. Uh, just a few weeks ago, China moved to come up with uh, about a 10-point plan for uh, how there could be a negotiation. Uh, obviously, a ceasefire was talked about. Obviously, uh, ending the uh, the conflict was also talked about. Uh, and there was some idea about potentially uh, partitioning that eastern side of Ukraine without any kind of actual concrete suggestions. So more of a TBD. Hey, what do people want in the region? But then who's going to conduct those polls? Do we believe those sorts of polls? Who knows? But the point is, it's good news that right now it seems like you've got China, before they actually send weapons to Russia, considering, hey, maybe what we ought to do is negotiate with both of the presidents so that way we can potentially limit uh, uh, the, the pain to our economies. Ultimately, that is one of the big reasons China is paying attention to this war, because the last thing China wants is to soften or weaken their economy uh, as they're trying to recover post-COVID. Now, uh, keep in mind, you've got a lot of money going over to uh, uh, to Ukraine. Look at uh, a lot, all the money that's been sent over to Ukraine. You've got somewhere around uh, $76.8 billion of financial support that's been sent just by the United States to Ukraine. 3.9 billion of that humanitarian, this is according to the Council on Foreign Relations, financial 26.4 billion, security assistance 18.3, weapons and equipment 23.5, grants, uh, basically straight up money, grants and loans, $4.7 billion. Uh, here are just some examples of some of the weapons that have been sent. Uh, and the other uh, aspect we want to pay attention to is who has been funding uh, the war, and it's mostly uh, of the, uh, by share of GDP, Eastern countries and the United States, Eastern European countries in the United States. But then if we look at sort of actual contributions, it's pretty much just the United States and long, long gap, and then the European Union, who's funding essentially this proxy war with Russia. And to some extent, that's the goal of the United States. The United States hasn't really been too active at caring about China's negotiated settlement suggestion for Ukraine, Russia, mostly because, in some extent, this is kind of the government's way of trying to beat up on Russia without actually beating up on Russia. Think about it. There are no American troops. It's just throwing American money at it. 
At least that's the American argument that, hey, this is a great chance to sort of weaken our adversary without actually doing the dirty work ourselves. This, by the way, right here is the outline of what Russia put together for a negotiated settlement. They talked about abandoning this Cold War mentality about, you know, threatening basically nukes, seizing uh, hostilities, resuming peace talks, resolving the humanitarian crisis, protecting civilians and prisoners of war, keeping nuclear power plants safe. Please, no more Russian attacks on nuclear power plants. There are too many stories about Russians walking around and kicking up a bunch of nuclear debris and fallout everywhere. Uh, not very good. Radioactive materials, bad. Uh, reducing strategic risks for the use of nuclear weapons, facilitating the export of food, stopping unilateral sanctions, this, by the way, is something that China is really pissed off about. We have a lot of sanctions against China, keeping industrial and supply chains stable uh, and promoting post-conflict reconstruction. Look, it's important to remember, uh, and this one will sort of end on this, but it's important to remember, uh, yes, not only the St. Paddy's Day coupon code for the programs on Building Your Wealth, but it's also important to remember that the more we sanction China as America, the more we actually incentivize China to create their own technologies and supply chains, much like what they did with solar. I talked about this the other day, and I, I think it was really an underappreciated argument, so I just want to summarize and reiterate it. Uh, Foreign Affairs Magazine did this phenomenal piece talking about how basically when China wants to do something, not only do they do it, but they do it bigly and well. Think solar panels. And this was an example that the council or the uh, Foreign Affairs magazine gave. They said, look, China in 2010 is like, you know what? We're going to get in the solar panel industry. Today, guess who makes over 90% of all the solar panels in the world? China. Guess who has the least expensive solar panels in the world? China. Guess who has the best technology for solar panels in the world? China. It's crazy. So the more we actually sanction, by the way, if you want to read that article, I'll give it to you right here. Uh, this was what the piece was. Uh, China's hidden technological revolution. And they talk about how it's driven a lot by our own sanctions, <laughs> which is remarkable. Uh, so in other words, something to pay attention to if you're thinking about uh, investing maybe in uh, Chinese stocks or uh, the MSCI uh, uh, Chinese indices. China, the more we sanction them, the stronger they get. And the fact that they're negotiating with Ukraine is actually a, a pretty, a pretty good thing. It'd be nice to see an end uh, to that. So uh, good news. But anyway, that is an update on China for you. Let's now jump back on over to what's going on with the markets. And uh, folks, it seems to be quite frankly worsening. Look at this. Uh, this right here is, uh, oh wow, the two-year just dropped below four percent. Holy schmoly, this is crazy. Uh, so now you've got the two-year dropping below 4%. It's now down 59 basis points. Are you serious? Oh my gosh, this is crazy. Uh, this is absolutely wild. We we are seeing a, a, the, a collapse uh, like which we have not seen since 1987 on treasury yields right now. Uh, this is wild. Over a half percent on two-year treasuries down in a single day. Uh, that's that's pretty remarkable. If we now go over to the 10-year, uh, oops. Oh, come on, CNBC. There we go. Let's look at that 10-year over here. What do we got? 10-year, 10-year, 10-year. Wow, 10 years down a quarter of a point to 3.4. That is going to be a boon to real estate, baby. Oh, man. Let's listen in to CNBC here. About tulips, okay? This is a bank whose clients were in the tulip business and pretty much all their holdings in the back room were tulip yes. bulbs. 
They're, yes. they're talking about mortgage holdings at a bank whose clients are super interest rate sensitive. The whole thing from yep. top to bottom, in my opinion, is just horribly mismanaged. And the fact that we're giving anybody a buy in this instance is so nothing to be proud of. I think okay. I yep. pretty much That was my question for you, Rick. You Dude, right on. Right freaking on. This guy nailed it. This is ridiculous, this bailout. Um, and whether individuals should be bailed out, the bank should be bailed out. Do you hold these depositors effectively accountable? My mom's 87 years old. She still moves her money around. She's very cognizant of insured up to what 250,000 means. And yep. I don't suspect there's a lot of businesses that could have less than that, which means they need to do their due diligence and where they domicile their money. Yeah, yep. I have no sorry feelings for anybody. And when I hear stories that people are happy that they've done this because their relatives have deposits, my guess is all the relatives we're thinking about probably handle their money with more care than the clients of this bank. Okay, and then finally, Rick, now, now that it appears that, that everybody's being backstopped, it turns effectively so many banks into public utilities. Yep. How should, how should they be operated then? What should executives get paid to do what so they do? Look how at how we're work? running our public utilities. You answered your own question. Look at our public utilities. You know, when we first invented cars and gasoline, they both grew up together. You had no gas stations, you hardly had right. any cars. They grew up together. Now, here we are, of course, trying to make EVs happen overnight in an inorganic way. Okay, same thing. We're talking about energy companies as utilities. To me, when you put those words together, when any entity becomes a utility, it just becomes more mismanaged as they go arm in arm with the government. Right. Rick, thank you. We got some other news we got to get. Yeah, look, he is so right. I mean, straight up fact bombs there. Yesterday, I went into uh, Mario's Twitter spaces, a lot of people in there, Bill Ackman, you had presidential candidates in there, senators, congressmen, people, anybody who really mattered on Twitter was either listening or in there. I had the honor of speaking on that Twitter spaces, and I was one of the people, one of the very few people actually taking the contrarian point of view. Now, I like to do that, not solely to be contrarian, but because I, I do feel like I have different perspectives. And my argument was, Hold on a second. Maybe depositors should be taking at least a little bit of a haircut. Because if depositors don't take a little bit of a haircut and the government, which is exactly what they ended up doing, ends up just bailing out everyone, what they're sending the signal of is, don't worry, banks. If you uh, fail because you're too risky with your lending, don't worry, we will bail you out even if you're less than too big to fail. In other words, you're smaller than too big to fail. You're too small and to, to fail. Well, that doesn't make sense because now we're basically saying bail everyone out. My thesis is all you're doing by 100% backstopping everyone is giving the middle finger to FDIC insurance. You've just told all of America that a $250,000 limit that is your insured limit per account per person. So you could actually, you know, jerry-rig that all the way up to like $2 million. You could go to the FDIC.gov and you could figure out, oh, if I have uh, an IRA, if my wife has an account, if I have an account, if we have a joint account, you could do all the math and you could get up to $2 million in FDIC insurance. All you have to do is go to FDIC.gov and figure it out. But basically, what the government just said is, hey, um, that $250,000 limit, <laughs> we weren't serious about that. 
The limit's actually infinite. Don't worry, you're too stupid to understand that when you go to a small community bank and they underwrite your loans, well, maybe we don't even know what underwrite means. When they give you a loan without even asking what your income is or caring if you have any income, kind of like 2008 when dead people got loans for mortgages and people were like, well, oh, housing just goes up forever. Maybe, maybe the government just ought to say, don't worry, we'll pamper you all the way from birth to death because you're too stupid to figure it out yourself. To me, it's a big middle finger to people who actually are diligent with their money. We all have heard about 250K FDIC. There's nobody that goes into a bank and doesn't know about it because there's signs and stickers everywhere that tell you. You know once you have more than 250K, subject to the various different accounts rules that I talked about, that you're at risk. And the fact that you benefit as a depositor from the incentives the bank gives because they're taking riskier action by either offering you higher rates, lower fees, or no underwriting, basically simple lines of credit for basically uh, businesses that have no cash flow, mortgages for business owners of businesses that have no cash flow that are super risky. Now the bank takes all the risk and what you're saying by creating an unlimited guarantee for them, not even taking a mere what maybe even a 5% haircut of deposits off of over 250K, what you're basically telling every other bank in the United States is, hey, don't worry, take all the risk you want because we will bail you out no matter what. We'll just bail you out. So take any risk you want. So why the hell would anybody not now uh, just take whatever kind of risky loans they can get? And why would banks not start offering those potentially creating even more of a bubble in the future? Now, short term, it's frustrating. It's a middle finger to the people who are diligent and the people who pay attention to these sort of risks. However, it's obviously a boon in the short term for those businesses who get all this capital and also potentially the moral hazard that's now created is going to potentially reanimate or accelerate, should I say, the debt bubble that we're actually in. Now, that could actually be fantastic for like the next 10 years. It's entirely possible that 10 years from now, we're just straight up because all the banks are like, we're just gonna get bailed out. So let's just lend money like crazy. And what could happen is you could have the craziest bull market ever for the next 10 years. And really what you're just doing is setting up an even bigger bubble to pop in the future. You're kicking the can down the road. That's all it is. It's corp it's, it's banking socialism is what it is. Nobody's allowed to lose money. No, because everybody's too stupid to handle things themselves. Let's just, let's just, you know, let taxpayers all distribute the, the, the costs. Now I get it. People keep saying, but Kevin, Biden and, and the Treasury Department say, no, it, it, it's not taxpayers that are paying the bill. Uh, yeah, it is. These are facilities that were established by the Federal Reserve to take toxic assets and were funded by taxpayers back in 2008 after the Dodd-Frank crisis. It's called the Treasury Exchange Stabilization Fund. It's ultimately what backstops the program when the Fed loses money on the toxic assets they're buying through the BTFP bailout facility. It's the, the acronym is not by the effing fed pivot, uh, but that's, that's what it kind of seems like. But anyway, um, it, it's wild because when that program actually takes losses, guess who's going to cover the bill? Taxpayers. So it's totally a fraud in my opinion to basically call this not a taxpayer funded bailout, but whatever, let them label it however they want. Uh, their goal right now is to prevent contagion. To me, it just sends a big signal 
that the Fed's not concerned about inflation anymore. Not only is the Fed not concerned about inflation, but they're able to wake up on a Sunday because they're so nervous about what's actually happening in markets that they realize, oh crap, it's probably not going to end with this one bank. It's probably going to keep getting worse. I don't know. That's just that's just my thesis. I mean, maybe maybe I'm wrong to say people should actually look at an insurance policy and go, that says I'm only insured up to 250K. Maybe I should be smart about where I put my money and diversify. Oh, wait, why would I do that? I'll just act dumb and let the Fed bail me out. And sure enough, that's exactly what they do. Whatever, man, whatever. You know, the, the reality is the vast 99% of Americans don't exceed the 250K uh, FDIC limit anyway. So this is just straight up taking money from taxpayers and bailing out rich people or businesses with lots of money. Now I get it. I get it. There are a lot of businesses who are operating their business paycheck to paycheck and they're like, oh, but if I don't have access to my capital, I can't payroll, pay payroll. Okay, well, you got backstopped. Now take the lesson, take that as a little wake up call and diversify your money away. Don't ever put yourself in a situation again where all your money is sitting at at, a, at one of these uh, smaller banks to where if one of them fails, you don't have money. At least if you're at the larger banks, you know the Fed is guaranteed going to bail them out uh, and run the money printer because they've already said that. The top eight are too big to fail, right? The smaller ones, maybe at least diversify amongst the smaller ones. But then again, right now, the Fed has set a precedent for bailing everything out, so maybe that doesn't even matter. Who knows? Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> uh, folks in the extended business and, and tech community there in the Bay Area and folks who are active on Twitter and social media, that Venn diagram is almost a circle. Hmm. And, and what we saw there is something that uh, I, I think we're all, I hope, going to walk away from a lot more mindful uh, because you put founders, you know, in situations where within hours they were making really tough calls, uh, knowing that you know th these are these are not CEOs who are riding around on private jets, right? The vast majority of these founders are still trying to build up companies and and solve really big problems, fighting cancer, climate tech, um, and and need to make sure that they can make payroll under this sort of uh, duressful situation. Where, look, the legacy of SVB was for decades they found a way to back entrepreneurs when very few other banks would without. Yeah, because they took risk, dude, because they didn't give a crap. They gave everybody money in a bull run. That's what they did. That was their magic way of finding a way to back entrepreneurs. It makes it sound like it's like brilliant. They found a way, oh, they magically found a way to give people money. They gave everybody money. For companies, once they've raised you know, tens of millions of dollars, but you know, I'm in the business of being the very first check into entrepreneurs' companies. So we're oh talking hundreds of thousands of dollars to maybe a few million at most. So for these early stage companies, these nascent companies that we know many of whom will, will become significant contributors to American economy and innovation, they need a place to bank. And, and the big four aren't gonna be a home for those companies. Uh, those entrepreneurs still need a place to put their money to, to, to not really do anything special with right. other than make sure they're paying their bills. Alexis, uh, I've uh, I've always admired your your humble approach to all of this, and I admire your your thank you uh, about all this. But I'm so curious, as you see so many others in the venture capital community over over the weekend, especially online, screaming from the rooftops, uh, not only asking for a bailout, blaming the Federal Reserve, blaming all, blaming everybody, uh, perhaps but themselves. 
um, and, and not necessarily taking the approach that you have this morning and how you think that puts the venture capital community in what may be the crosshairs uh, as people think about things like carried interest and other regulations down the line. Yeah, look, this is, I think, I, I, I hope, I really do hope this will be a chance for all of us to take more stock and more reflection, right? At the end of the day, I, I take responsibility within my own firm of having that single point of failure. Uh, and I think every one of us as leaders need to understand that we have this, we have a weight and it's something, it's a platform. I know this is gonna sound weird uh, and maybe a little surprising, but I think there are many people in tech and in VC that, that may not even fully understand and appreciate the, the, the impact that they have. And oh I think God. for many of us, there were a number of calm voices, a lot of you know amazing venture. This is cringe. This is like, this is literally a guy on CNBC. Hey, I'm a rich one percenter, you know. I, I like to be the person who invests first in startups. Call my VC firm and we'll write you a check. But, you know, we're just so grateful the Fed just bailed us out so we could keep writing those checks. What is this? Especially Twitter, uh, in this case, uh, can be a place for ideas to spread quicker than ever. Uh, we saw. We saw folks posting, I mean, outright misinformation about some of these banks over the weekend, um, who also, a few tweets earlier, admitted that they held short positions in those oh. same companies, right? This is, you, you can see the receipts. It is, this is a new era for us as an economy, uh, for us figuring out this distribution of media. And, and I think, yes, there's a responsibility oh. borne by every one of us. Uh, especially those of us who have platforms of influence. And, and this was so much of what my team and I debated and talked about in those uh, you know, 36 hours was the signal that we would send telling all of our founders the language that we would use. We, we, we tried so hard to be as careful as we could to provide the best information and support we can. Oh uh, also knowing that it, it, you know, what we say has a tremendous impact. And it's not just the hundred companies in our portfolio, it's the hundred other founders that they know and the thousand other people or the hundreds of thousands of people following on Twitter that, uh, that pay attention. And, and so I hope it gives us all a moment to take that stock and, and do better. Uh, and I, so, look, I'm, I'm one of the first that needs to do it. Yeah, yeah, you're one of the first. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, this guy's a tool. Spreading misinformation. I mean, as you said, there are receipts and if the SEC didn't have enough to do already, thing for them to dig back through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Alexis, right now, because of this, the way it's stepped in, all of your firms are okay? They're all going to make payroll? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're obviously, everyone's still, uh, uh, you know, holding their breath, but I feel like we have, uh, we've breathed a huge sigh of relief. And I'm here at Austin, here at South by. And, and so, no shortage of startup CEOs and founders who were uh, sleeping a lot easier last night as a result. And, and I do think, look, there's more to come from this. There's the 1% is sleeping easier. God, this is cringe. That kind of just, just simple banking for early stage companies that need a place to put their cash. Um, but yeah, for as it seems right now, everyone's making payroll and you know, 
where, where you know CEOs are able to get back to work and and more importantly, what are you talking about? How are people making payroll? The banks haven't even opened yet. And earlier he's like, oh, the big four isn't a place for the startups. What do you mean it's not? You could totally put your money there. You're a founder and you put your your company's money there from your shareholders. You could get a better deal on your personal loans at the bank if you promise to keep mm -hmm. all your money there. Is that mm -hmm. the sort of thing that you'd heard of before? And should those policies That's the point. be, be That's allowed? That's point. Oof. Now, I'm not a banking expert, but oh! I, I think when we start getting really cute, we start getting cute with this sort of thing, uh, this is where these problems emerge. And I, I do think there's going to be another round of scrutiny around those 2018 rollbacks. Um, but I do think at the end of the day, the biggest need for entrepreneurs and for these emerging companies is a place to put their cash where they know there's nothing terribly cute happening behind the scenes. Everyone is taking all the right precautions. No, and, not. Uh, and and I do think the market is going to provide some kind of an answer for that because it needs to. It needs to fill that role SVB had. We just had socialism from the Fed, you dumbass. The market was trying to do its job. Get down to the, thank you. Want to get down to New York Stock Exchange? Jim Cramer joins us now. Uh, Jim, this oh, was Dan Loeb last night. He said, "I'd say all's well that ends well, but I think this story is just beginning. Is it just beginning, or did it end?" Well, I think that there's some something in between that we Wait, have a number did they just cut him off did they just get the guy off air did, did they just cut him off with jim or is the guy coming back <laughs> so they can take their held to maturity bonds put them at par this is unfortunately i know a little abstruse and then be able to get loans the question is will they need capital raises and if they need capital raises then you've got to be very careful buying any of the regionals i think when what i don't want to be constrained by what Loeb said i think the issue is is that we all know and david knows this he was saying that there are some banks that are on the wrong part of of what the fed wants which is that they don't have sticky deposits and they are going to have a big problem keeping their deposits and then there yeah. are other banks chiefly the ones that are great banks you know we're talking about jp morgan uh wells fargo and we're also talking ab about uh i would bank of america that aren't in trouble and actually would be the beneficiary of this so i think it's no it's over for some but not for others but today would be a day where people will say there's uh, we have the bonds going crazy interest rates going lower that's actually good for these banks but it's viewed as a flight to quality. So I don't know. Why do we have to say all's well? That, I mean, look, it's, you know, I, I just find that Shakespeare is, is not as applicable as typical. How about that? Okay. Jim, we will see you in just a couple yeah. of minutes. Thanks so very, very much. Thank you. We are awaiting comments from President Biden <laughs> on the banking sector. That is due. They cut him off. <laughs> they got the guy off. With Jim cut in. Oh, oh, uh, uh, Jim walked in. Quick, quick, cut to a stupid clip from Jim. Get this Reddit guy off air. Dude, that was so embarrassing. That was the most cringe. Whoa, look at me. I'm a white knight VC guy. So happy people can pay their payroll. I get it. I don't want people not to get paid either. But you were so fake. It was so cringe. Oh, no wonder CNBC cut him off. Thank God. They cut that guy off. It's just going to get harder and harder to get a loan at, a, at, a, at an interest rate that makes a lot of sense. They're scram CBC scrambling now. They don't even know what to talk about after that. They're like, we had the guy scheduled until 6 a.m. <laughs> Let's go to Bloomberg. This is ridiculous. Tasty trade. Join the club, genius. Oh, it's just an ad. It's just an ad. <laughs> 
Oh my lord. I, I, I can't, I can't. <sighs> All right. Profitability falls right now in the market, right. that there will be zero. Um, and that's a big change from where we had seen things before. Um, again, we've been watching all of this through the morning, and we are expecting some comments coming out from President Biden. That's expected very shortly. In the meantime, there you see the Fed, right. uh, the Fed fund futures. That's a huge reversal from just last and week. And our understanding is he is going to push uh, hard, hard on the idea that, that Americans deposits in banks across the country, no matter what bank you're at, are safe. That he's going to say that repeatedly um, and hoping, of course, that those deposits stay where they are. Of course, the big concern is that they move Good again luck. and um, whether we have uh, staunched the bleeding. Uh, across the board, you started to see things drop. WTI was only down by about 1% a, a couple of hours ago. Now it's down by almost 5%, 72.91. Again, a lot of this is flight to safety, right. um, concerns about where the money's going to be, concerns about broader term, what this means for the economy as well. Um, again, got all of this kind of coming up with natural gas, which is now down. It had been positive earlier. It's now down by about 1.5%. I want to thank everybody for joining us on this special edition of Squawk Box, especially if you stuck with us for all four hours. Make sure you join us tomorrow. Squawk on the Street begins right now. All right. So waiting for Biden. Technically, he's uh, supposed to be coming out within a minute or so. We'll see. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Jim Cramer, David Faber at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. We are waiting for remarks from the president about the banking system after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and historic moves to protect depositors, extend emergency lending, Relaxing terms of the discount window, big implications for bank regulation, tech funding, and the Fed's rate path, which the market now sees with better odds of no hike uh, this month, Jim. Two, three handles to watch today, intraday. One was the two-year, the other is the VIX. Right. Look, I, I think that you have to separate what's going to happen today and tomorrow by what we will be thinking about a week from now. And David and I were discussing the fact that it, it, it's very difficult for the Fed to hike. And if we knew that... Uh, we would be buying a huge number of stocks that did not have any credit risk. David, I think you'll agree with me that uh, there are some banks that are in trouble that haven't been solved yet, but will yeah. be solved because of what, uh, what happened last night. Definitely. But there's a lot of fear in the system, and there's a lot of fear also that the uh, right now that some of the companies that need, uh, let's, let's say, that need these pre-IPOs, same suit. Number of companies that need these IPOs, yes. these companies, will no longer get the business. Right. Right. So there are biotechs that won't, that uh, some companies won't get the business, but chiefly, chiefly the tech companies that, that were relying on, on selling to these pre-IPO companies. It's, uh, listen, it's a fascinating morning for any number of reasons, including, as you just said, if we were operating in a vacuum right now with the move we've seen in the two-year, for example, and suddenly this consensus that the Fed may be done, right. we would be up, I don't even know, Carl, percentage-wise, uh, as we watch well, the president I'm urging that panic is definitely going to be... Joe Biden! Uh, for California, I want to briefly speak about what's happening in Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, uh -huh. Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. And their hardworking employees can breathe easier as well. Last week, when we learned of the problems of the banks, and the impact they could have on jobs of small businesses and banking system overall. I instructed my team to act quickly to protect these interests. 
They've done that. They've done that. On Friday, the government regulator in charge, the FDIC, took control of Silicon Valley Bank's assets. And over the weekend, it took control of Signature Bank's assets. Treasury Secretary Yellen and a team of banking regulators have taken action, immediate action. And here are the highlights. First, all customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured, I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills, and stay open for business. No losses will be, and I want, this is an important point, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Let me repeat yeah, that. Right. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Instead, I, the money will come from the fees that banks pay into the deposit insurance fund. Because of the actions of that, because of the actions that our regulators have already taken, every American should feel confident that their deposits will be there if and when they need them. Second, the management of these banks will be fired. If the bank is taken over by FDIC, the people running the bank should not work there anymore. Third, Duh. investors in the banks will not be protected. They knowingly took a risk, and when the risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. That's how capitalism works. And fourth, there are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. In my administration, no one, in my no one is above the law. And finally, we must reduce the risk of this happening again. During the Obama-Biden administration, we put in place tough requirements on banks like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, including the Dodd-Frank law to make sure that the crisis we saw in 2008 would not happen again. Unfortunately, the last administration rolled back some of these requirements. I'm going to ask Congress and the banking regulators to strengthen the rules for banks to make it less likely this kind of bank failure would happen again and to protect American jobs and small businesses. Look, the bottom line is this. Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. Your deposits are safe. Let me also assure you, we will not stop at this. We'll do whatever is needed on top of all this. Let's also take a look at a moment to put the situation in a broader context. We've made strong economic progress in the past two years. We've created more than 12 million new jobs, more jobs in two years than any president has ever created in a single four-year term. Unemployment is below 4 percent for 14 straight months. Take-home pay for workers is going up, especially for lower and middle-income workers. And we've seen record numbers of people apply to start new businesses, more than 10 million of them, more than 10 million applications over the net last two years starting businesses. Now we need to keep the program, this progress going. That's what swift action that my administration over the past few years is all about, protecting depositors, protecting the banking system, protecting the economic gains we've made together for the American people. Thank you, God bless you, and may God protect our troops. See you in California. Mr. President, what do you know right now about why this happened? And can you assure Americans that there won't be a ripple effect? Do you expect all other banks to fail, Mr. President? Should all depositors be protected at all banks? That is the president, uh, no questions, uh, speaking for a shorter amount of time than maybe perhaps some expected, but reiterating that depositors uh, will be protected, management to be fired, uh, investors not protected, 
And then again, as Gensler this morning, Jim suggested, those who are found uh, of any wrongdoing will be held accountable. Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult to find someone who uh, exercised their absolute right to be able to invest. All right, let's do a quick summary and some commentary on that. So Biden just spoke, talks about how the banking system is safe. Don't worry, he says, the banking system is safe. Your deposits are safe. Yes, because we had just had a whole load of institutional socialism to make sure the banking system would not lose a dime. Now, Joe Biden suggests, oh, don't worry, it's not going to be the taxpayer who's paying for this. Instead, we're just going to raise the fees on all the banks who pay FDIC instead. But then again, who pays the fees at banks? Banks pass that along to customers. But not only that, the Treasury Stability Fund that backstops the bailouts the Federal Reserve is doing is a fund that's created by taxpayers. This is a fantastic way of basically, as usual with a politician, talking out of both sides. Yes, today, maybe it's not being paid for by taxpayers, but that's because the Federal Reserve is basically accepting toxic assets and assuming they're actually worth par value. It's like somebody walking up to you and saying, hey, can I borrow a hundred bucks from you? And you're like, sure, give me your, I don't know, phone that's worth a hundred dollars. And you look at it, you're like, this phone's only worth 40. And the person's like, can I still have a hundred dollars? And you're like, okay, sure. I'll just say your phone's worth a hundred. That's kind of what the Federal Reserve is doing here. So yeah, sure, today there's no tax bailout, but could this be increasing our deficits in the future, leading to essentially taxpayers paying for it? Absolutely. What else did Joe Biden say? Well, he talked about basically uh, no losses uh, uh, being borne by the taxpayers. Again, I dispute that either way, but instead shareholders taking the losses. That's fair game. Bondholders and shareholders in banks should lose uh, money if they make an investment that goes bad. That's fair game. Managers get fired. Well, duh. So Joe Biden argues that don't worry, we're going to go in and we're going to fire the managers at these banks where the banks fail. Duh, you're winding the banks down anyway. Silicon Valley Bank, everybody who works there got their pay increased by 50% for the next 45 days just to help the bank get liquidated. In other words, the government goes in and goes, we're going to raise everyone's pay. Who's going to pay for that? Mm -hmm, probably taxpayers. Anyway, we're going to raise everyone's pay 50% and we're going to wind the bank down. That's what they do. Do that for about 45 days. Uh, anyway, Joe Biden uh, talks, uh, he repeatedly said all depositors can rest assured they'll have access to their money as of today. Uh, really what they're trying to do is they're trying to prevent a bank run. They're trying to prevent uh, everybody basically going from smaller banks and starting to run to larger banks and uh, shift their money around. Although quite frankly, that's exactly what people should be doing, even though that, uh, you know, creates panic, as some say, and that's fear, uncertainty and doubt. Really, the reality is everybody should be looking at their own situation going, well, if I have more than $250,000, maybe I should have another bank account. Maybe I should diversify a little bit. Maybe I shouldn't go above FDIC insurance limits for smaller banks. He talks about uh, essentially how we've made a lot of economic progress in the past two years. And the bottom line is, rest assured, the banking system is safe. Your deposits are safe. And we will not stop at this. We'll do whatever is needed. <sighs> Okay, Joe. Okay. So that's, uh, that's Joe Biden's take on what's going on. 
Uh, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced uh, about the taxpayer idea, but uh, hey, you know what? We'll see. In the meantime, the market is not very happy. Unlike what it was yesterday, you've got uh, the two-year treasury rebounded a little bit right now, uh, sitting down about 40 basis points at about 4.18. You have the 10-year uh, treasury down about 20 basis points, sitting at about 4.9. Pre-market, pretty much everything's red, down about three quarters of a percent on Dow and S&P, half percent roughly on the NASDAQ. Oil sitting at about down 4.8. To 4.5%. Uh, the stock market open is going to be pretty remarkable this morning. I'll be covering the stock market open with course members every morning. I do a course member live stream with course members when the market is open and we watch the uh, opening bell together and do Q&A and such. But for now, let's take another listen into uh, CNBC here. Let's see what they're saying here. Remember, we've got that coupon code uh, for St. Patty's Day. Prices will be going up next week and you get a price guarantee when you join. Uh, but prices generally trend up over time. And right. I think that we have to be responsible right here. I can tell you that there's a lot of people who I felt were irresponsible. I don't want to bother with finger pointing. That's, you, can, you can take the whole show about finger pointing. That doesn't help anybody at home. I think we'll probably get to that in time. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that you have to look at what to do today. Okay. So the market's down. Who has no credit risk and no exposure to these banks? Well, that's the drug companies who conceivably could have exposure to the clients of Silicon Valley boot and therefore not be able to do as much business. That's the tax. Who do does do the food? Does, what does this have to do with Campbell's soup? I mean, I'm saying that if you decide that this takes down every single stock, well, there are some that will be bought tomorrow. And I don't want to say this is something you should join. The ones that we're picturing right now, I mean, you could argue, why are we picturing them? Well, because they might have enough, they may not have enough sticky deposits, sticky meaning retail, to be able to make it so they don't need to do a capital raise. You're talking quickly. about yeah. the table, I, the I, chart I, that Symbolist yeah, published we just, yesterday. We should understand. Just explaining what an outlier SIDB right. was. Okay, there's a fellow by the name of Michael Symbolist. He is indeed a friend of mine. We did go fishing together in Panama. But he does a fantastic thing called Eye of the Market, which is read by a lot of people. CNBC, by the way, on our site, we have it. They put, he put together a, an actual graph that has most of the banks that we're dealing with. And wow. what you can see is that J.P. Morgan is in phenomenal shape. Yeah. Uh, Wells Fargo's in great shape. Yeah. But there are banks. What, they, what he did was look at the loans plus securities as a percentage of deposits. And what's on the far right... Let's just say you don't want to be there. On the far right, lower. All right, now City's on there, and that's a, that's a little bit... Um, they don't have sticky deposits. Yes, but it's a little but misleading, too. It yeah. is. Well, we don't want to say it's misleading. It just happens to be the case. But right. it, it's a big bank, and I don't, I don't want to put it in there. But if you notice, right next to it is SPMY, which yep. is closed. Yep. What I wonder, Jim, is some of the other ones, a PNC... Well, those are the difficult ones. ...or U.S. Ones. Bank. Are they, are, they, are they potentially a USB in a position to acquire here? Because they, it's still yes. unclear to me that J.P. Morgan... I mean, they would need the government to say, OK, we'll let you get even bigger. And, of course, what has, been, what has happened over the last few days? Well, the big have gotten even bigger. Well, bank of America and J.P. Morgan, yeah. we don't know the numbers, but... It has to be many billions no, in deposits a, they right, have taken uh, in. They Look, is it not in the interest of the federal government to keep community banks and smaller banks? I don't know. I think it's in the interest of the best banks surviving. Of course, we don't just want, like, four big banks, right? We want more than that. But uh, anyway, let's jump on over to uh, Bloomberg. Let's see what they're saying uh, in response to this. Let's take a listen in here. 
The market and inflation really aren't giving the Fed signs that it can pause just yet. So, Zach, what do you make of this move at the front end of the curve, not just in the U.S., but in Europe, too, in Germany? It's a huge move, and it's showing that market expectations have repriced significantly, and I think that makes sense more so from a terminal rate perspective. I'm not so sure that the Fed or the ECB or other major central banks that still need to tighten policy to address inflation are done just yet, but it makes a lot of sense to us that we're not going anywhere near as high as we as the market had been priced for last week yeah. as taking out those potential additional incremental hikes seems unlikely given the uh, unexpected move in and just all of the uncertainty that's in the market now. Well, the last month has yeah, been dominant. fair game. All right, <laughs> the year is 2035 and me, Kevin opens his first bank, bank hack. <laughs> That'd be funny. Uh, hey, maybe. Hey, uh, all right, uh, look, I've got to go. Thank you so much for being here. Check out the courses, a link down below on Building Your Wealth. I'm going to jump over to the course member live stream after I make a cup of coffee. Remember, you get lifetime access to those course member live streams. So whether you want to ask questions a year from now or a month from now or today, uh, join me there. I'd love to have you. Most popular bundle, by the way, stocks and psychology of money and real estate investing. With that drop in bond yields on the 10-year treasury, mortgage rates are going to fall. So we might be getting a little closer to uh, needing to get into real estate. So buckle up. Let's talk about it in the course member live stream. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you in the next one. Goodbye.